You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. All right, do we have any questions? I like paragraphs. Oh, did she? All right. My live studio audience said Jenna Hardman wrote a question. Israel trip? No, if man is totally depraved. Oh, here we go. Why is he capable of performing selfless good acts? Okay, so a man is totally depraved. Why is he capable of performing selfless good acts? Um, By depravity, what we mean by depravity is not that um, man is incapable of doing anything good by human standards or by human observation. So we can run across totally depraved people who are um, who work in soup kitchens and will help the homeless, and yet they're unsaved. And those might be good acts in terms of our human assessment of what is good, because we see people who do apparently selfless things, but um, but they're still not they're still not good things in terms of how God would evaluate it being good and God's assessment of it, because if it's not done by the Holy Spirit through us as a result of the grace that God gives to us, and if it's not done in faith, because whatever is not of faith is sin, and if it's not done in obedience to God as an expression of gratitude and affection to Him, then it is itself sinful. It might be it might be good in terms of our human assessment of it, but from God's perspective, it's not a good act because it is not done by a person or individual who is filled by his spirit, walking in his grace, who is saved and honoring and exalting and doing it as an act of worship to him as a true act of worship to the one true God. So in that way, it's not good in terms of how God would evaluate it, but it might be good in terms of how we as human beings would evaluate it. Um, the other thing to keep in mind with that is that by totally depraved, we don't mean that man never does anything that is um, noble or honorable or good in a human assessment. The act of total depravity simply means that man's entire being is depraved. Total, total depravity means that everything about us is affected by sin. So it's not that we don't do anything good by human assessment, by, by human assessment, by how, how humans would assess that. But it does mean that every faculty of man is affected by the fall. We are depraved or affected by Adam's sin and Adam's fall totally. So that it means that our bodies, our minds, our will, our logic, our ability to reason, um, our, our ability to, to do anything that, to choose righteousness, our ability to do good things, our ability to walk with God, our spirit, our soul, our body, all are corrupted by sin, all fallen. So that, that is what total depravity means. It means that every faculty of man is affected by the fall. Not that everything that man does is totally wicked. By total depravity, we don't mean that man is as wicked as he could possibly be. Uh, even Hitler was not as wicked as he could possibly be. But he was more wicked than we are, judged from a human perspective. So total depravity doesn't mean that man is as wicked as he could possibly be, because there are people who could be a lot more sinful if the grace of God did not restrain them. The common grace of God did not restrain them from sin. So that's what we mean by total depravity. Uh, hold on. Let's flip back here through more questions here. How can Thomas still perform acts of good? That's good. 
Um, can you explain First Timothy two fourteen to fifteen by Adam not being deceived? Um, what does it mean that Adam was not deceived? Yeah, First Timothy two. Let me pull it up here. I can read it in its whole context here. I know what you're talking about. The woman being deceived gave to the man and he ate. It was the woman who was deceived and not the man. First Timothy 2. Um, yeah, so this comes in the context of Paul prohibiting women from teaching or exercising authority over a man. First Timothy 2, 9. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works as is proper for women, making a claim to godliness. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness that I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve, and it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. But women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. And of course, the ignore the chapter division, chapter 3, verse 1, it's a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of an overseer, it's a fine work he desires to do. And so the qualification for elders then is given. But Paul prefaces his qualification for elders by talking about the role of women within the church. And he doesn't permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. And I think that in the context, since he's talking about elders, he's not talking about women can never teach, you know, their children or children or other women or anything like that. That's not what Paul's describing. He is talking about the teaching role of an elder type teaching role exercised within the church, within the church body in a position of authority over men. That's what Paul prohibits. It's basically women teaching men in the context of a church as an exercise of an authority over them inside the church. So as a preface to why Paul prohibits women from teaching or exercising authority in that context, um, Paul gives two reasons. Number one, the order of creation that man was created first and then the woman. So there's something in the order of creation that determines or signifies headship. Um, I once once asked by somebody, why doesn't your church allow women to teach? And I, I clarified, and I said, it's, it's not that we don't allow women to teach, it's that we don't allow women to teach men in the context of the worship service in a way that would exercise authority over them. And this person then said, well, why does your church not allow to, uh, women to do that? And I said, because Paul says, I don't permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. And then I went on to explain it has to do with, number one, the order of creation. There's something established in headship. There's something established of headship in the order of creation itself. Paul says it was the man who was first created and then the woman in indicating headship. And by the way, it's the same argument that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 when he's talking about um, the gender roles there, about women wearing head coverings as an, as an expression of their submission. Um, he takes it all the way back to creation, um, the creation ordinance, that there is something in creation itself that establishes that headship structure. And the second reason that Paul gives there, and after verse 13, it was Adam who was first created and then Eve, and it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. You remember, in Genesis chapter 3, it was the, the, ser the serpent who came to Eve first because it was Adam who had received the, the command to not eat of the fruit of the tree. And then he had obviously passed that on to Eve or Eve was not present when Adam received that command. Um, but the serpent came to her first and deceived her, not Adam. And so it seems as if from what Paul is saying that the, the Adam, when he ate, did not eat because he was deceived by the serpent. Adam's motivation for eating the fruit seemed to have been something else other than being deceived. 
he was not deceived. He knew what he was doing was an act of rebellion. The woman was deceived as to the nature of the tree, the nature of eating the tree, and the nature of God's commandment. And so the woman was deceived, and it wasn't the man. So that that prohibition against a woman teaching or exercising authority has to do with the order of creation as well as the order of the fall, or I should say the the uh, what happened in the fall. It was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman was deceived. And and this is not intended to be sexist in any way, but it is difficult to it, it is difficult to not observe through church history that many of the cults and religious movements that have been started have been started by by women. Um, many of them have, not all of them, obviously, but many of them have. And uh, then when you get into when you get into uh, areas of of apostate churches in the United States, you can look at apostate churches, and without exception. The, the ones, uh, the, they are churches who have led, let women teach in that, uh, capacity and not had any restrictions on a woman teaching or exercising authority over a man. Just yesterday, I think it was, uh, somebody posted to Twitter, a lady, I forget what her, her name was, but she posted about how she's been, um, appointed as the teaching elder in her church. And I don't know what type of a church this is. But immediately, Beth Moore tweeted out her approval of this and her encouragement to that person for um, taking that position. You have right now going on in the Southern Baptist Convention uh, in the SBC a massive fight over the complementarian egalitarian issue, whether women are allowed to teach and exercise authority over a man. It was floated, I think it was last summer, the whole idea of having Beth Moore as the president of the Southern Baptist Convention. And uh, people were talking about that, and even men within the Southern Baptist Church were uh, somewhat sympathetic to that and willing to uh, abide by that. So, um, yeah, that's what it means that Adam was not deceived. He wasn't. He ate as an act of rebellion, not as an act of deception. The woman did not eat as an overt act of rebellion. Her act of eating the fruit was an act. She was deceived by the serpent. So, all right. Is that clear? My studio audience says yes. All right, I'll just scroll down through here looking for another question. Um, what is the purpose of the book of Revelation? I'm not sure how to respond to those who read it and then look for all the ways it connects to current events, sort of like a biblical dot to dot. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, what is the purpose of the book of Revelation? The purpose of the book of Revelation is to reveal things and to make them clear. Um, that is why I say that any... Any attempt at interpreting the book of Revelation that makes it unclear or to makes it some sort of an enigma or mystery that we can't figure out, uh, I think is a, is a faulty method of interpretation. And I would throw in there, of course, any non-premillennial approach to Scripture, I think, makes a hash out of the book of Revelation. Uh, the book of Revelation, the intention of it, I mean, the, begin, the, be, the book begins with a promised blessing for those who read the book. And, and heed its warnings. So the book contains an intention to bless those who read that book and to understand the meaning of that book. The purpose of the book of Revelation is to show us the unfolding of the future. And it is an apocalyptic book. It is a highly symbolic book, probably the most, uh, no, I'd say it is the most symbolic book in the New Testament. But the symbolism is not intended to confuse us. The symbolism is intended to reveal something that is true. Um, why do people treat it like a dot to dot? This is where I think you get into the, um, whether it's Hal Lindsey or, um, oh, who's the Texas, the big, uh, loud, bombastic Texas preacher. Um, oh, his name escapes me. Justin would know because he courts, uh, 
he courts the uh, Word of Faith movement a lot. Um, oh, was almost there. Sorry. Anyway, um, I think that the error that people commit with the book of Revelation is to take the book of Revelation as if it's supposed to be disguised, uh, dis discussing modern-day events, and they're always trying to find some connection to the book of Revelation to modern-day events. The, the, I think that the book, of the book of Revelation needs to be interpreted in terms of its broad, sweeping themes, and it's... Uh, and it's pointing forward to something that is mostly future. If you start looking at the book of Revelation, you're seeing in chapter 13 and 14 things happening today, and you're saying, well, this is this. There's a one-to-one -one correspondence between that prediction of that event and this thing that's in the news headline today. I think that that's an abuse of the book of Revelation. I think most of what we see unfold in Revelation, we're going to see fulfilled in hindsight. But I do think that the book of Revelation describes a future seven-year tribulation period where the Antichrist will deceive the nations, um, and he will set up a one-world kingdom, and he will control commerce. And that will end with a massive battle in the Valley of Armageddon, followed by the return of Christ, and a literal 1,000-year kingdom, followed by another rebellion, and putting that down in a judgment of the living and the dead, and then the eternal state. So those are the broad... Those are the broad strokes of the book of Revelation that I think are we are intended to see. Uh, we need to stay. No, it's not Hagen or Jim Baker. It's the the Hagen. Uh, no, not Hagen. Uh, Hagen. John Hagen. That's it. It was John Hagen. You said Hagen, and that was like close. I thought that sounded close. But yes, John Hagen. That's right. Johnny Rocket. Thank you. Uh, he's the one who's constantly connecting the dots in the book of Revelation. So I hope that answers that question. What is the purpose of it? Um. Who had a question? Spud. Spud. Um, let me conclude that women are not to speak in church and their instruction comes from their husband. What if a woman, what if a husband is not a believer? Um, if 1 Corinthians 14 is interpreted the same as 1 Timothy, we conclude that women are not to speak in church. Uh, no, I would say that, that, in, that there's two things going on in 1 Corinthians. We can interpret it consistently with uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2 in that the women who are, uh, that the speaking there would have to do with, probably in Paul's context, the use of certain gifts, certain revelatory gifts or teaching gifts within the congregation, since that's in 1 Corinthians 14, which has to do with the gifts. So the speaking there, um, I would say, is probably a reference to certain speaking gifts, prophecy, uh, tongues, interpretation of tongues, which would have been active in the first century church. They're not active today. And even if that involves teaching or uh, in some way standing up and giving a message to the congregation, it, it is in that context that women should remain silent in that because then a woman cannot get up and you exercise that gift in that context of a worship service with men present without her violating those commands. And so, yes, you would have to remain silent in those terms, but it doesn't mean that a woman walks in the door and that she can't say hi to the greeter or she can't ask her children to go to Sunday school or anything like that. That's that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about in the congregation of men and women assembled together where everybody comes together and everybody has a gift, right? The use of those gifts, one of the things that restricts the use of tongues, interpretation of tongues, prophecy, and things. Again, we're talking first century context, not modern day, because I don't believe that those gifts are even uh, uh, being given today. But in that first century context, the use of those gifts in a congregation, a woman could not do that without violating that principle of teaching or exercising authority over a man. So they would have to remain silent in that context. And if they had something to say or had a question or something that would be addressed, they would have to address that to their husband. 
So, but that doesn't mean that a woman can't walk up and ask me a question because that's not what's being described there in First Corinthians 14. It would be the use of, it would be women standing up and, and being bombastic in the worship service in some way like that. Um, for instance, you look at, uh, the other instructions that Paul gives in First Corinthians. He, he describes in First Corinthians 11 the, the headship order within the worship service and within the family. And that headship that goes back to creation again with men in leadership, um, men providing that protection and that provision of leadership to to women and to those in the congregation, that it's men who are to lead in that way. Um, that, 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 that there were issues in first, there were issues in the church at Corinth with women who were usurping that authority. And we had the same thing in Ephesus when Paul wrote to Timothy in first Timothy. So, uh, that's the issue with women usurping authority, and, and that's the correction that is given by Paul there at the end of 1 Corinthians 14. All right. Um, yeah, if their husband is not saved, then they need to, for that First Peter chapter 2, where they need to live in submission with a, gracious, with a gracious spirit so that he might be one without a word. And, of course, an, a woman with an unsaved husband is not going to be able to go to him with theological questions or uh, questions about Scripture. Uh, she would have to seek out and find biblically qualified leadership within her congregation or people who, or even a, a, a biblically qualified woman who could answer her questions in some way. Those, those would be the options for a woman with an unsaved husband. All right. Uh, I'm looking for it here. Did Nathel have one? Yeah. I've heard people say that God causes calamity. True. Does God cause it? or allow it, or is there a difference? Um, is cause it or allow it, and is there a difference? A lot of times Christians will try and get God off of the hook by saying, um, well, God didn't cause this, and, and, and the implication seems to be that God is sitting back and doing the best that he can to stop all these horrible things that come into our lives, um, or does God, does God cause it? I think it's possible for God. I, no, I would say that God does cause a lot of calamity. And I, I read the passage uh, several weeks ago from one of the prophets. I think it's Isaiah where God takes credit for the calamity that he causes. Um, but we're not talking about doing something sinful or morally wrong. God can send an earthquake that destroys and takes the lives of 10,000 people, and he has done nothing wrong in causing that calamity. It could be an act of judgment. It could be an act to get the attention of unbelievers. It could be an act to discipline Christians. Um, in some way, and it could be, um, God could be doing all of those things through that act of calamity without having any moral culpability in it. Um, so yes, God does ordain all things that come to pass, and God does cause calamity, and God does use the evil things that he ordains to happen for his good, or for our good and for his glory. So there is, a, I think there's a difference in the way that people use those two things, that God causes something and God allows something. There's a difference in how we speak of those things, but I don't necessarily think that the difference in the end of the day gets God off of the hook, which it seems that many people use that terminology. They're trying to get God off of the hook for, for having something, for allowing something to happen. They just want to portray God as if he's sitting back with his hands tied, watching it all unfold, um, sort of biting his nails and, and wishing it were different. And I don't think that that is a, I don't think that that's a good picture of God. I, I would say God does use and cause calamity and he, and he uses those things sinlessly. He uses them sinlessly. All right. Next, uh, question. Should Christians concern themselves with conspiracy theories and satanic going ons in the world or look on YouTube? 
Uh, one look on YouTube, and there are a ton of ministries dedicated to exposing these theories. Bill Gates seems to be a hot topic right now. Um, I'm not a big fan of conspiracy theories as a general rule. Uh, I think that uh, I'm just not a conspiracy theorist. I know that there are evil forces at work. I know that there are evil people at work. There are evil people with a lot of power and a lot of money who are doing everything they can to promote evil in the name of good. Uh, is there some cabal somewhere, some one world cabal where the, where the orders are coming down from, uh, you know, some person somewhere centrally located? I don't think so. I don't know that you could prove that if there was. Um, but we do know that there is somebody behind the scenes, some evil personage behind the scenes who is, um, who is trying to accomplish all of that. So if there is a conspiracy, it's in the spiritual realm, in which case we can't be concerned about it. So I know that Bill Gates is a hot topic right now because of the vaccinations and everything that he wants to see happen. And, and I understand the concern there and I'm opposed to all of that. Should we be concerned about it and be doing everything we can to promote the, the theory and get everybody aware of it? I, I'm not posting that stuff on Facebook. I'm just, there are evil people at work and is there a conspiracy? I'm not. Maybe. I don't know. I, I, it's not something that I care about in terms of that's going to be my hobby horse. So I don't think that we, there are a lot of ministries that are dedicated to it because sensationalism sells. And uh, Jimmy Baker can sell food be, and but using uh, Bill Gates as clickbait, and, um, and it's very effective. And it is something sensational that draws a lot of people in, and I'm just not, I'm just not a fan. Um, what do we got here? Isaiah 45 is the reference. Yes, thank you. All right, did we have another one come in? Honors Patriot. Honors Patriot. Uh, Kenneth Copeland demanded a vaccine for COVID-19. Right. All right, do we have any other? I'm not seeing... Uh... Yep, I don't have any other questions coming in. Unless I missed one. If I missed one and I haven't addressed it yet, please uh, put it into the chat. Are lions going to eat grass during the millennium? Or is this a... We'll wait for the rest of the question. Or is it a what? Are lions going to eat grass during the millennium? The answer will be Yes. An allegorical nature of man. No. Oh, good question. No, it's not an all It's not allegorical of the nature of man. Um, if we believe what's look in the Old Testament, it predicts a kingdom in which the effects of sin are going to be lifted, in which people who die at a hundred years old lifetime lifespans will be expended uh, extended, not because not because sin will be no more, and not because death will be no more but because the effects of the fall will be mitigated by the rule of Christ. And so the scripture does teach that the wolf and the lamb will lay down together and that they will do no harm and the child will play with the cobra, etc., etc. I don't think that there's any reason in any of those contexts to take those as allegorical statements. Because the minute we get into saying that these are allegorical statements, then the interpreter is, then the the interpretation of the passage is subject to the interpreter. And so you might say, and I'm not saying that you would say this, Casey, but you might say, 
um, that the, the, the lion laying down with the lamb or the lion eating grass in the millennium is just an allegorical statement of the nature of man. Well, what nature of man? Man before the fall, man after the fall, man after he's redeemed, man in the eternal state. What is that? So, you, you know, then, then we're just debating over which nature of man it is. And how do you know it's allegorical of the nature of man and not allegorical of the nature of my human pet? Or how do we know it's not an allegorical statement about the nature of Israel or human government or even Satan himself or fallen angels or a good angels? You see, then we're, then we're just debating over what's an allegory of. Um, and that's the problem with allegorical interpretations of scripture is that the, the true meaning of the text then is determined by the interpreter and not by the, the author. So you'd have to go back and say, what did Isaiah mean when he said that the wolf and the lamb will lay down together? Was Isaiah describing the nature of man? Well, if he was, then if he wanted to say something about the nature of man, he he could have said something about the nature of man using non-allegorical language, just like he does in Isaiah chapter 6, where he talks about being a man of unclean lips and living a man among a people of unclean lips. Those were straightforward ways of describing the nature of man. There were other ways of speaking about the angel nature of man that didn't require the use of a lion eating grass or eating vegetables. So... In the millennium, there will be, animals will no longer be um, um, carnivorous. They will be herbivorous, herbivores. They will eat grass. Um, look, and, and this is not something that we see unprecedented even in nature right now. Uh, there was an, an article in Answers in Genesis of a lion that these people had, and it was, these people were either performers, they raised private lions, and this lion ate hay, it ate grass, it ate vegetables, and it would turn it, turn its nose up at meat, and it wouldn't eat meat. I used to have a dog that, well, he would eat meat, but he would also eat the hearts out of, he would eat tomatoes, he would eat watermelon and cantaloupe and carrots and beets and lettuce, and he would eat the hearts of cabbage. He loved vegetables. So that's not something that we see even in, in animals that have, um, carnivorous teeth or um, you know, teeth for eating flesh, them eating vegetables and subsist subsisting off of vegetables is not something that would be impossible. So there's no reason why we would take the lion eating grass in the millennium as anything other than a straightforward reading of what the animal kingdom will look like under the reign of Jesus the King in a, a earthly kingdom where the effects of the fall have been mitigated and lifespans have been increased and animals do no more harm. All right, so it looks like there's a bunch of questions that came in while I was going for that. Uh, can a person that has truly had a Christian rebirth experience have their heart hardened later in life? Jim's dog is no longer with us, clever. Um, oh, what's the one about not denying science here? Um, how do you respond to those who say Christians deny science? Okay, let me deal with that one real quick. I, I how, how do Christians, my, my question would be to answer that question with a question, how do Christians deny science? Because we believe that God supernaturally created things. That's not a denial of science. Um, what in the, what in the realm of observational science do Christians deny? Um, we don't deny the scientific method. In fact, the scientific method is only, uh, only makes sense in a Christian worldview where there's some order in creation where we can expect that a God who is orderly and systematic in how he does things, um, that our experiments are always going to turn out the same every time we run them. 
So I don't think it's not fair to say Christians deny science. That's a, that's a logical fallacy. We don't deny science because they're using the term science to mean evolution. And science is not evolution. Science refers to a method. And Christians don't deny the scientific method, nor do we deny the, the outcome of the scientific method or the observations of a scientific method. All right, so um, can a Christian who's had a truly Christian rebirth experience have their heart hardened later in life? I would say, yes, they can have their heart hardened later in life, but not in an unsaving, un, an un, a non-salvation way or not in a, a hardening in terms of of like an unbeliever whose heart would be hardened and penetrated by the gospel. And that would require them losing their salvation. I think it is possible for somebody who's been truly born again to grow distant in their walk with the Lord and to become cooled in their affections to the point where we're lukewarm or to the point where we don't respond to truth like we should, or we don't respond to our conscience like we should. Um, that has happened and that does happen. Uh, our prayer and hope is that a, a believer would respond to the truth. But when we live in disobedience to the truth or we deny our conscience or we, we sin against our conscience, our heart can become hardened in the sense that we become insensitive to the work of the Holy Spirit or even to the, the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. And that's why we should strive always to have a soft heart. But, it, but I don't, wouldn't say that they can have their heart hardened in the sense of them becoming an unbeliever or becoming hostile to the gospel and then finally perishing. Um, Chumgito, what is the proper interpretation application of the passage dealing with women and head coverings? <clears throat> All right. Uh, let me deal with Brad and Mary because we're talking about science here real quick. For science thinking, meditating neighbor who could be open to truth, what book might you recommend? For a science thinking, meditating neighbor... Let me think. I, I would say, um, if you're looking, if you if you have somebody who's considering creationism as a whole, um, I would recommend something by Jason Lyle. If they're wondering about, see, see, that's such a broad, that's such a broad subject. If they're wanting to, if they're wanting to. Yeah, I was going to say that, Thomas, about Jason Lyle's book, but I've got like three of them. So if I'm trying to be more specific here. So if they want something that deals with the interpretation of Genesis, I would suggest Paul Taylor's book, which we're going to be giving away to people registered for the spring conference if we still have that. That would be... Let's see. Let's see. All right. I would recommend this book here, The Six Days of Genesis by Paul Taylor. That will deal with the introductory chapters in Genesis and what they teach. Um, biblical creationism versus like day age theory or um, old any kind of an old earth perspective. Ken Ham's book, The Lie, kind of deals with evolution as a philosophy. That's a good one. Of Jason Lyle's stuff. Um, if you're looking for somebody who who says, look, I'm logical and I'm rational and reasonable and I can't buy into Christianity because it's irrational and illogical and you people deny logic and you deny reason and all of that stuff. This book here, The Ultimate Proof of Creation, this is the one we gave away when Jason was here. This book shows you that you cannot even have 
uh, a commitment to evidence or the scientific method without first believing that there is a creator that is described in scripture. This is an excellent one. And it has a, it deals in here with logical fallacies and, and how logic works and why logic works the way that it does. And then if you have somebody who's really intellectual and they want to, to kind of get into a, a discussion or understanding of, say, Einstein's theory of relativity from a, an, a young earth creationist perspective, the physics of Einstein by Jason Lyle is fantastic. So that's where I would go with that. Um, okay, next question. Ochamgito, what's the improper interpretation application of the passage dealing with women and head coverings? <clears throat> okay, just checking the time here. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the, I think that the interpretive principle that we apply in 1 Corinthians 11 is we see a historical reference to a, uh, two things, a reference to two things. First, a biblical principle, and then a culturally relevant and a, a culturally respected application of that principle. So the principle of 1 Corinthians 11 is the principle of headship and leadership. Men in headship, men in leadership, by the order of creation, by the ordinance of God, etc. I think that that needs to be expressed in some culturally appropriate or relevant way. And in first century Corinth, that would have been a head covering. A, a woman who had her head uncovered was a harlot or a prostitute or demonstrated the fact that she didn't consider herself as being in, in any way under authority. And so Paul wants, wanted the church at Corinth to demonstrate the creation order and the authority structure within the church in a way that would be recognized and understood by everybody. And in that context, it would have been wearing a head covering. In our context, wearing a head covering does not express submission to authority. You can go out in the, like a woman wearing a hat, you can go out and find a woman who is unmarried, rebellious, unsaved, who wears a baseball cap or a hat out in public. A head covering, a hat in our context, does not express that authority. It does not express that submission to a husband. So I think that the challenge for us in applying that principle is finding a culturally relevant and a culturally um, recognized way of expressing that creation ordinance and that authority structure within the church. A woman wearing a hat doesn't do that. So how would a woman exp express that? toward her husband. It might just be in the way that she comports herself or conducts herself. Um, so it, the short answer to that is that the head covering itself was a cultural expression of that biblical principle. Just like greet one another with a holy kiss. We're not going to do that when we get back our first Sunday at church. We're not going to greet one another with a holy kiss because that was a cultural expression of a a biblical principle, which was demonstrate brotherly love and compassion and, and, um, and an appropriate like it would be the first century equivalent of our handshake. When we greet one another, we do so in Christian love with a handshake. That's an appropriate, culturally relevant way of expressing our love for one another and, and our, um, and our greetings with one another. In the first century, it would have been a kiss, which would have been a brotherly, it would have been something that everybody did, but a holy kiss is one sanctified where they would have greeted their brethren in that way with special Christian love and affection. So, um, in our cultural context, a head covering doesn't communicate submission or the creation ordinance or anything. So that's why we have to find ways of expressing that ourselves in our own congregation. Um, one way I think we do it as a church is we don't have women do any kind of leadership in the public service in that way. We have them assist others who are leading. That's fine, like um, singing on a stage. But that order of authority and leadership, even in our worship service, is always recognized and always demonstrated. All right. Um, um, the front of the fall. 
Prior to the fall, there was no death. This is no meteors yet. Okay. Reading down here for science thinking. Oh, how do you respond to people who quote Hulk Hogan's statement, God said you want to worship? Um, I, I just, I don't think Hulk Hogan is a theologian that I quote. Um, as terms, in terms of the substance behind the statement that we have violated all of God's commands, and so God is giving us something to judge us, I think this gets to a bigger, broader principle, and that is that in the midst of any event that is happening that is cataclysmic or, um, or earth shattering like this, whether it's an earthquake or a, or a tsunami or a car accident or a plague like what we're facing or anything like that. I don't think that we have the ability to say exactly what we know that God is doing. I think generally we can say that in every calamity, God to the unbeliever is either taking their life, getting their attention so that they will repent or punishing them for their sin. So God will do that in a calamity to the unbeliever, to the Christian. We know that God is either, God is always going to discipline us for our good so that we may embrace him and, and get rid of sin and walk closer with him. That's what God is doing to the believer through any calamity. So other than to broadly say to the unbeliever, God is getting their attention to discipline them or to bring them to Christ or to the believer, God is disciplining us or he is doing something for his glory and for our good, conforming us to his image. We know that God is doing that in our hearts. But other than those general statements, we can't say that we know that COVID-19 is God's judgment upon this nation. It might be. We don't know that. In the Old Testament, when when the prophets predicted judgment upon a nation for its sin, and they would say, for instance, the Babylonians are coming in like Habakkuk does, and they're going to destroy Israel for its sin. The only reason you would know that the invasion of Babylon was to destroy Israel for its sin was because a prophet revealed that that was the mind and the will of God through that judgment. And since we can't know the mind of the will of God apart from divine revelation for any particular act that happens or any event that happens, all we can say is, generally speaking, we know that God is either uh, punishing or um, or drawing the unbeliever to himself, or he is doing something for in the heart of the believer in a general sense. But we can't say that because we worship sports, God sent COVID to shut down sports. I, I don't know that that was God's mind in it, and I can't claim to know that that's God's mind unless I have some kind of personal revelation. So that's what I would say about that. Um, we miss you all too. What does a wife's submission look like in a Christian marriage? Just look at my wife. <laughs> it means following headship. It means showing love and respect and being a helpmate and, and seeking to honor your husband and the decisions that he makes. Um, it means that you follow his leadership. And even though you might not agree with it, you... You do what you can, and and uh, and and you submit to that in a in a in a respectful and admiring way, in a way that is cherishing to your husband, and um, and ultimately, if he makes a bad decision, that that's on him and and not on you. You're seeking to honor him, and and you have to submit to a man unless we have to submit to our husband unless I should say we. I'm not submitting to a husband, but uh, a wife will submit to her husband unless he asks her to do something that is patently unbiblical or patently a violation of God's commandments, in which case she has her responsibility to disobey that in a very submissive way, in a way that honors him. So the idea behind submission is lining up behind someone else's authority or leadership and putting yourself under that position of authority and leadership and then uh, doing so in a respectful and, and, and honoring way. <clears throat> um, 
have a moderator for these Q&A sessions who collects the questions and presents them to Jim for an answer. Yeah, that's kind of what Peter does, but he does it from a distance, and he's doing that out in the sound booth, so he'll try and repost something if he sees that I have not answered a question. So um, we could actually have somebody in here who would collect those questions, but the problem is that the chat channel keeps churning so quickly that um, it ends up it ends up sp spilling down through. The questions end up disappearing before I can get a chance to answer them, and then you have to have somebody back here who's writing them down or at least scrolling through them for us. So that that might work. Um, hopefully, we won't have to do this much longer. Maybe one more Sunday. Um, all right. Do we have any other questions? Did you ask Jim's permission to ask that question? That's clever. Uh, all right. I think I got them all. Yes, indeed. Indeed so. Peter, your, your, help, your help in this is greatly appreciated. I realized that uh, the other day that not all churches have the um, technology or the people in place to, to help with some of this and to make stuff like this possible. In fact, I read a story about a a church who has made their facilities available to other churches to come in and do streaming services uh, so that their technology is in place for them, other people to do it as well. So it is, um, it is a blessing to have people who do this. All right. If we have no other questions, then um, any questions about the book? When's it going to be in print? When will it be in print? Question from the live studio audience. Um, let me see. My goal is to have everything written and revised by the end of May. Um, then it will be to Deidre's desk, and she will proof it. She usually takes a few weeks to do that. And once that is done, once it's all proofed and it goes through its final, uh, then I have to put it into a format. I have to put it into the, the PDF format that will be printable, that gets uploaded to the publisher, to the printer, and um, put it into a Kindle book format. Um, that um, that will take uh, a couple of days worth of work. So I'm hoping by midsummer, if everything went really well, like Fourth of July. But I hate to even say that, so I'm going to say uh, by the church campout. I would love to have it published by the church campout, which would be oh this book right here. That's my book. That's not, that's not the other book. Oh, look at that. That's a lot of proofreading. There's another question. Um, when will we be able to read it? You think it's possible in some cases when someone takes their own life, God will show them mercy if their mind is so far gone they're no longer accountable. I think it is possible, though rare, for a true believer to be in plagued by depression to the point that they would take their own life. I believe that that is possible. I believe it's possible for a Christian to sin in that way. Um, I also believe that it is possible for people to think they are saved and pretend to be saved and end up doing that as an expression of them not being saved. And ultimately, I don't think that you can judge the salvation of somebody who who died in that way, even taking their own life, 
Um, as a historical example, the William Cowper, who wrote the hymn or the poem, um, we sing it as a hymn or a song, uh, God works in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Um, William Cowper was plagued for his entire life, even as a Christian, with chronic depression. He got even suicidal at times. And his pastor was John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace. And he was in Newton's church. And Newton personally discipled Cowper for years. And that sin of 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 um, wrestling with depression, depression was his thorn in the flesh, Cowper's thorn in the flesh. It was something, though he had times when he would come out from underneath those clouds of despair, Cowper never really officially, never really totally conquered that that plague of despair and despondency and sin. And he wrestled with that, even as sometimes questioning his own salvation because he was so depressed at times. But it really was his thorn in the flesh. It really was something that he had to war against his whole life. And um, and even though he knew Newton and Newton was his friend and his pastor and discipled him, um, Cowper never got out from underneath that cloud. And so what would we say of a William Cowper who who loved the Lord and by every indication in the rest of his life, other than chronic depression, gave evidence of salvation in his life and love for God. And yet he constantly wrestled with that sin, with that with that thorn in his flesh. Um, what would we say of him if in a moment of despair and weakness, he took his own life? Would we say he wasn't saved? And that's the evidence of that he wasn't saved. Um, what would you say of me if the last thing that you knew of me was that I committed some sin and then died right at that moment? Would you say that me dying in the moment of committing that sin or struggling with that sin was an evidence that I was never saved? Or would you look at the whole lifespan of somebody's life and say that there is evidence there of salvation, even though at a particularly weak moment they died and took their lives? I would look at Cowper and say that the evidence of his salvation was there, um, uh, uh, even in spite of the fact that he struggled with that sin. So an individual who commits suicide, does God know their heart? He does, and ultimately he knows if they are one of his or not. Um, we would not say, because I don't believe that sin, that, that the sin of suicide, even though it is, uh, even though it is the committing of a murder, it's self-murder, that that sin itself is necessarily one that eliminates somebody's salvation. Um, I don't believe that you can be saved your entire life and then die in that way. And all of a sudden that disqualifies you for heaven because that right, because we come back to the, the, the finality of salvation as to whether or not salvation is final and full and complete and whether what Christ has done to atone for that person's sin, even the sin of suicide, if that's their last act on this earth, um, is sufficient or not. It comes back to that question. I do believe, of course, that the sacrifice of Christ and the righteousness he provides and the forgiveness forgives even that sin. That's no excuse, obviously, for committing suicide. Uh, nor should any Christian ever do that. They should get help. Um, but the the act of suicide itself, though it should cause us to wonder and question, is not itself a something that all of a sudden eliminates our salvation or, or takes us out of the righteousness or out of Christ. That's not an unforgivable sin. I hope that adds some context to that. Maybe that's something that deserves a little bit more time and attention, but I hope that's a brief enough answer. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.